welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, political chaos in Britain and the U.S. and how media on both sides of the Atlantic are playing it. We're going to talk to John Alsop, who writes The Media Today, which is CJR's daily email newsletter. And he happens to be, we, we pulled him in from vacation, and he's thrilled to be here, correct? Yes. I say, I say yes to that. Okay. I am, I am thrilled. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. So before we get into that, I'm really interested in you know how Boris Johnson and Donald Trump are covered by media in their respective countries. You have a really interesting perch on this whole thing because you write a daily email about U.S. media for CJR, and you do it from your palatial flat <laughs> in London. Has a garden and everything. Has a garden with a um, with a soccer thing, right? Yeah. You were telling me. Yeah. A goal. Anyway, so you're sort of an insider outsider, which I think actually has really helped has really helped us in terms of sort of communicating the world of media in a way that's fresh and and new. Partly, I just wanted to have you on because I think you really have done a great job of kind of boiling all this down. But before we get into to Johnson Trump, tell me just how you do this job. Like, so how do you, what are the mechanics of writing about the media every single day in an effort to try to find something new to say? I think it's it's firstly about sort of obviously inhabiting all of the coverage and, and sort of trying to get a sense of as much as is possible where the where the coverage sits on, on the important issues of the day, both in American politics and, and also sometimes globally. The dirty secret of how we do this is that right. you're, you're up five hours earlier than we are and it gives you time to kind of think. And, and, and honestly, I do think that that's a differentiator because I think people who have to sort of get out of bed and crank this stuff out, I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very hard. Yeah, and I think also we live in a, just on that note, we live in a very, like, obviously a very congested news cycle. And those sort of hours when I write the newsletter every day in the morning in the UK when it's actually still in the middle of the night here are when it comes to american topics at least quiet you know they're much quieter on twitter because people are asleep there isn't necessarily new content being cranked out apart from the stuff that goes up early on on news websites there isn't stuff happening in dc that can sort of change the whole daily news cycle um in a heartbeat or at least not at least not most days so how do how do you see the coverage of trump and of his travails different in the UK, in the British press, than what you read every day here? Like, what, what is, is the, is the storyline basically the same, or, or are there elements of it that you sort of have noticed over time that are distinctively different? I'd say it mostly the same, apart from, apart from, I would say, maybe those outlets which have a presence in the US, and so their coverage mm-hmm. of America is done by people who would be writing also for an American audience. But I think mostly it's, it's, um, at a sort of simpler level, right? Where you know people in the UK, as much as they find Trump totally fascinating, are like less invested in him than Americans who want to sort of follow his his every movement. But no, I think there's a there's a general sort of sense in certainly in opinion writing of of incredulity at the the stuff that he does. I think also there's a sense among readers in different parts of the world, but particularly the UK, which has such a close relationship with the US, that we have a real stake in who the US president is and how they present themselves to the rest mm. of the world. That's something. I found in, in old columns that Boris Johnson wrote. And Trump does not square off with the traditional image that American presidents um, presents, present to the world. And I think that that kind of is a, is a thing guiding coverage. You were talking to me earlier. You have this piece that's, gonna, that's out in The Nation about Johnson's time in the U.S. Um, but part, partly you get into this idea of how, 
how U.S. presidents are sort of seen, and the at least the way that Johnson has seen them, he attaches a kind of virility, <laughs> right? Yeah, well, I to think the so. American president, maybe not to the president personally, but I think that to that's the office. His, yeah, that's his view of the office and of, uh, and of America, sort of as a as a country. Yeah, Johnson is an, is an interesting political leader because he did used to be a journalist. I, I wrote a piece for CGR about this a few months ago about yeah. his 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 time as a journalist, but. He became a politician in, in, I think, 2001 when he... Well, he sort of became a politician formally. He's, you could argue he's always been a politician. But he's someone who has served in a, you know, in a high level of public office for the better part of the last 20 years. When he entered Parliament, he was still working as the editor of a, of a British magazine. He did both jobs for, for three or four years, I think. And he continued to write with some breaks, but he continued to write a, a, a weekly newspaper column um, right up until he became prime minister, you know, and, and, and so he has left a very rich thought record compared to most politicians. Now, there are those people who say you can't take a single word Boris Johnson has ever said seriously because he's such a congenital liar. I think Johnson certainly has a, a problematic history with the truth, but I think when you take themes from people's written work, opinion columnists' work in particular, that come back and back and back over a period of years, it's hard to see how they would be part of this kind of grand lie and it's very clear it was very clear to me from reading johnson's columns on america he was he was born here i should also add which was another kind of part of the story but it was clear from reading those columns on america that he thinks america is the greatest country on earth is sort of obsessed with this idea of like raw american power there are columns he wrote before the iraq war went sour in his eyes sort of admiring and, and really again really being in awe of the american military effort in iraq there seems to also be kind of a, a libidinal part of it. He did a profile of Silvio Berlusconi in which he uses the word American to mean kind of explosive masculine energy. It's nothing to do with the country America, sort of a, just as a, a synonym, which I've never seen before. And, and when it, But when it comes to the president... And he, is he masculine? Because he doesn't seem like that to me at all. I think he, I think he, I think he does. In that he's regard... A man. In fact, yeah. he's a, um, a man with mistresses, right? Yeah, he, him and Trump, From as much as I find some of the comparisons between them to be a little surface level both have a, a complicated romantic history, let's say. Um, but I think he, I think what's interesting, sort of squared off against this very raw view of American power, is I found in his newspaper columns in the past, whenever he's written about presidents, he has valued presidents who present themselves to the world as open, tolerant, sort of, you know, America's the greatest country and we're sort of the imperial power of the 21st century in America, but we, we as the American people want to like want the rest of the world to like us and we want to do good moral leadership so he's written very explicitly he, i think he actually did an interview in maybe it wasn't even a column in like the late 2000s he totally had soured on george bush having originally liked him and he said i really wish we could have bill clinton back mm-hmm. because clinton presented this view of america to the world that was so much better than the one bush presents mm-hmm. he then endorsed obama for president in his in his newspaper column mm-hmm. using very similar language you know obama can restore american greatness in the eyes of the world because he is hopeful, open, tolerant figure. This is the same Boris Johnson who then dropped a, a sort of insinuation about Obama's Kenyan heritage during the Brexit referendum, saying he resents Britain because of that. So again, you have to take everything he says with like a huge pinch of salt because he will then go ahead and contradict himself normally in an inflammatory way. But I think it does, I think the, the sort of the sweep of his columns and interviews that I read show that he sort of does value American leadership in, and, and the sort of traditions of American leadership that Trump not only does not embody, but explicitly sort of repudiates. Right? Yeah, and he's he is sad. He right before the election, didn't he that that he thought Trump shouldn't be president in twenty fifteen yeah. when he yeah when when Trump was running, he said he called Trump unfit to be president. Said he was out of his mind. I think with specific reference to the Muslim ban, it is worth noting, and I think that quote is important. It's worth noting that Boris Johnson back then 
was still serving as mayor of London, mm. a job in which he gave a much more liberal accounting of himself than he did subsequently during the Brexit campaign, just because of the general political inclinations of, of Londoners tend to be you know, more to the left than other British people. There's a large Muslim population in London. So I think you do have to like look at his remarks on the Muslim ban of Trump, maybe with a slight political... But, but I certainly think it's completely true to say that the way Trump presents himself in America to the world is totally at odds with what Boris Johnson is on the record many times as saying he values an American leadership. Right. So it's, it's an interesting um, right. thing to look back on. The, the simplistic sort of approach to the two of these people in the press here has been that they're similar yeah. um, and that the press I mean, it's even been talked about a lot in the media coverage you think that's totally off right i think it's off what about in the coverage i mean so here you have johnson who was part of the fleet street sort of establishment right versus trump who was a complete outsider and was a source to a lot of journalists and a subject of a lot of journalism but had no official role. What have you noticed in terms of the different ways in which the two of them are covered? Well, what's interesting in the, in the UK is we obviously have a much more aggressively partisan media climate than in the US, traditionally speaking, right? Like we are, our newspapers are, you know, for the conservatives or against the conservatives, for labor, against labor. It's our sort of media, print media landscape, at the very least, is structured around party politics and ideology in, in a way that has not traditionally really been the case here, or at least not in recent US history. And so you have this weird situation where you have a prime minister who until very recently was being paid an awful lot of money by The Telegraph, which is a major daily um, broadsheet newspaper, to write for them. And a lot of their coverage of him now is incredibly fawning, as you, as you might expect. I mean, he literally... He literally used to work there on staff way back when. He's been a columnist there for years and years and years. So there is a thing with, obviously, Trump has been a fascination, particularly of New York, the New York press corps, for a very long time. But, but Trump didn't literally work for news organizations mm-hmm. in, in New York, whereas Johnson has worked for many news, well, at least uh, certainly in recent memories, worked for The Spectator and The Telegraph. He also worked for other organizations back in back a little further in history. But he knows people. you know, He knows commentators. He knows journalists. I think, publishers. And, and, yeah, publishers. And I think it's, it's there's certainly, in some coverage of him, a much more sort of clubby feel to it. The, mm-hmm. the opposite. Does that carry a kind of winking and knowing tone to it? Like, like we get this guy, we know who, who this guy really is? Yeah, I think so. I think when you... I've interviewed many journalists about Boris Johnson, and conservative journalists, there is a sort of sense of, yes, Boris isn't perfect. You know, yes, Boris tells appalling lies a lot, but... He's misunderstood, and you know he's actually a, mm-hmm. has sound views, and he actually does have a, an ideological program, and he's not totally craven, and he's not Trump. You, you will hear that actually quite a lot from mm-hmm. from people who are sticking up in his corner. But you know, it should also be said that that, that Trump clearly inspires a very ris- visceral reaction among liberal commentators, and also you know I, I think it's fair to argue the liberal media writ large. Johnson does the same in the UK. Liberal commentators really hate his guts. They see him as a deeply troubling threatening menace to British democracy. And I think actually, and I think you see Johnson amplified by the international press sometimes mm-hmm. as being part of the same club as Trump, right? Mm-hmm. Part of that sort of club of authoritarian leaders taking over established democracies and, and mm-hmm. tilting them in a, in a dangerous direction. I did a newsletter a few weeks ago on the coverage of Boris Johnson's decision to suspend parliament, which, which mm-hmm. caused a huge stir, which was being covered in international publications as one of the, I think someone literally used the words, one of the most dangerous democratic subversions we have seen in a long time in reality i mean i think it was a deeply cynical thing for him to do and he deserves scrutiny for it certainly i'm not trying to let him off the hook but it wasn't it wasn't so far out of the norms of what british prime ministers are and have been able to do in the past Mm -hmm. but i think 
I think I think it was sort of blown up um, in a big way, and I think part of that is that there is this kind of implied comparison to Trump. This he sort of fits the narrative of this surging wave of global populism in mm. in the eyes of many pundits and journalists, and and I think that's what I find to be a lazy comparison between the two. I'm not saying you can't make comparisons between them, but I think this idea that Johnson is the British Trump, which is what Trump has actually <laughs> called him in the in the recent past, mm-hmm. I think is I think it's a, a comparison that does not do justice to the to the complexity of either character, but particularly to, to Johnson. So Johnson's now in this, to me, very, quite hard to follow um, Brexit yeah. fight. <laughs> well, I mean, you're not alone. I, I understand, um, but I, I, the, the iterative moves of it I find quite complicated. And I think there's, there are comparisons in the kind of opacity of that story to the Mueller story here, and, it, you know, where where it was hard to sort of, it was hard for people to get their hands around the narrative. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why it fizzled. I think they're very, I think they're very interesting to compare the kind of general chaos in the UK and general chaos in the US stories, because they're, they're very different, right? The, the Mueller story and, and now the Ukraine and impeachment story are extremely detailed and complex to, as you said, to get arms around. I think the Ukraine scandal is, it's easier. And it's, it's a little easier. Although even then, there's there's a lot of sort of shady characters. Rudy Giuliani's associates, for example, who seem to have been involved in some very murky business in Ukraine. I don't think the I think the top line that that those guys Trump are just like out of a Disney movie, though. <laughs> I mean, they're like perfect villains. They dress like villains. They look like villains. They're like perfect. I think the, the reporters and the press generally should stay in mind very clearly of the fact that Trump has essentially publicly admitted to the thing he's been accused of doing, and then that should be a... I remember the day he came out in the White House driveway and basically admitted to doing the thing. There was sort of a sense of, did he just own up to it, rather than communicating the full gravity? But Well, by the way, we we had Joe Lockhart in on this podcast to talk, like, the day after that, and he actually thought it was a brilliant move on Trump's part. He was like, he has just quieted all of the speculation about did he do it, did he not do it, and just by saying it, I mean, Lockhart thought it was a really smart sort of messaging strategy on Trump's part. The word he used, I think, was durable. It's something that that he can use to stick with, and now it becomes a debate about should it be legal or shouldn't it? I mean, it's in the Constitution, <laughs> which is a bit of a problem. But anyway, go ahead. No, I, I think so. Um, but I think but I think that's, I think essentially the Mueller story in particular and the Ukraine thing, they're, they're scandal stories, right? They're big webs of intrigue. Brexit is, is, is an intensely procedural story, mm-hmm. right? It's about how... A country disentangles itself from its neighbors, from a, from a, a geopolitical an and economic arrangement, not just an alliance, but you know, a, yeah. a, an arrangement that is, sort of has its tendrils in in every aspect of regulation and mm-hmm. life and culture in the UK. And it's about it's about how a very deeply fractured nation and parliament sort of navigate the complexities mm-hmm. of that. But I think that a key similarity that. They're both intensely detailed stories, and the press, of course, should be reporting the details. But but the fact there are so many allows actors who would spread misinformation or propaganda to mm-hmm. say, well, if you you know if you're having a hard time getting your head around this, because it's, it's all made up, it's a convoluted conspiracy, and I'm going to give you a much simpler narrative to listen to. That's in the U.S. context. In the U.K., it's well, Brexit is really simple. It boils down to just leaving, you know, or like it boils down to just staying. There's a simple way out of this. There, there is a temptation, I think, because these stories are so difficult for political actors who are engaged in them to try and oversimplify them. And I think that then that encourages other people within the two countries to try and oversimplify them. And I think that then leads to a, I don't know, people just switching off when, when coverage tries to communicate the full detail of, of, of what's happening. I, th- I will also say in the Brexit case that 
But I think it's an enormously difficult story to cover because yeah. a lot of this goes on behind closed doors. It's not even 3D chess. It's like 8D chess by the time you get down to sort of whether the, whether the specifics of this kind of mooted deal sit within the political posturings of Johnson and then the opposition parties and then the European leaders themselves. But I think that's yeah. a sort of journalistic problem and an, an approach that needs to be done better. I, I think that there's the people get to reporters and news organizations get too much in the weeds and don't often enough sort of step back and contextualize these stories and put them in some kind of frame. I mean, I notice this a lot when I get alerts on my phone because I mean, I follow this stuff pretty closely, but I will get alerts sometimes that I'll, I'll have to, I'll, it, it, I, I won't understand what it means. Like, okay, I get that that thing happened, that fact occurred, but what does that mean? Where does that leave us? What what happens next? Especially where in this climate when there's, as you say, bad actors who are trying to, they're basically looking for screw-ups. They're looking mm-hmm. for journalistic missteps that they can sort of seize on and then use that to sort of pollute the whole story. I agree. And I think, I think you know, there there is a way, and I, I think it's the same with the U.S. news cycle, but certainly in the U.K. where you can read sort of an overview of all the last days or that day's Brexit developments and just get a totally different overall picture when you piece them together as, mm-hmm. a, as a reader, right? Like one day it's a deal is never going to happen. We're definitely leaving with no deal on the 31st of October. We're going to crash out. It will be an economic disaster. The mood music in Brussels is very bad. These unnamed EU sources have told British reports, have told, have told our man in Brussels that, that, that you know, there's no For way there'll be a deal. For those of you who can't see this, John is, has, is adopting the posture of like a TV <laughs> presenter. He's sitting straight up and like staring into some imaginary camera. Go ahead. Right. Um, but, but no, that's, that's, that's kind of how it is. And, and, um, and then the next day, it's like the moon music in Brussels is much better today. Our <laughs> anonymous Brussels sources have told our reporters that, that Johnson has made important concessions in yeah. a private... You know, so you just get a completely different sense. And I think, yeah, and I think that is a failure, essentially. As, as hard as I do legitimately think it is to keep track of all this development, but also sort of keep a, a broader lens on it. It is a failure of sort of trying to anchor all of these things in a, in a bigger picture. And I think the same thing is certainly true of the sort of big... Trump scandal stories. And yeah, I think with this Ukraine story, I think there will be likely be incredibly significant developments that broaden this out on a bunch of fronts. I don't think this is like, I don't think we're likely to find out this Ukraine um, call was an isolated incident. I think there's already some evidence to suggest that it was not. I think that um, the testimony of the witnesses Democrats are currently hearing, albeit in private for now, um, will likely throw up new leads. And as we saw with Mueller, it's very, very easy for these sort of limited in scope inquiries when it comes to Trump in particular to sprawl way beyond an original thing. And I do think it's important, obviously it's important to cover that sprawl and to just follow the facts wherever they lead. Clearly that's that's the most important thing. But it is important to to take a step back and sort of anchor this all in, in, in sort of the most important overall context. I think with this Ukraine thing, it's the fact that Trump has literally admitted to doing the thing the Democrats accuse him of doing in public to reporters not only said that he did the thing, but then said, and actually China should also look into the Bidens, right? So, but he's yeah. he, but he's very savvily sort of turned this from a from a criminal or legal question to a political question. So it's like, yeah, I did this. So right. should we care? And the press shouldn't be complicit, by the way. In uh, I think I think in terms of it being a, impeachment is not really a legal question, yeah. right? Yeah. It's it's much more of like, it's almost entirely a political question. But the standard for impeachment is not legal in the in the sense of like yeah. within the confines of, of the criminal statutes and the judicial system it does an impeachable offense does not have to be within those confines but but yeah i think i think it's important that and this is a, a theme we've seen 
over and over again in Trump coverage since before he got elected. It's sort of letting Trump be the assigning editor, right? I think is what you like mm-hmm. to say. It's like letting Trump shift the sort of sands beneath the story until suddenly you're, you're covering something totally different to what you thought you were covering. And I think with this impeachment story, it's really important that that doesn't happen. And I think the, the coverage actually recently has been has been pretty good at doing that. Mm. But it needs to stay anchored. It needs to sort of stay sort of within the basic facts. And I, I think it's I think it's a problem that if Trump had not admitted to doing the thing, and in several months we found out about these things because the transcript was leaked through a series of source relationships to a major newspaper, I think you would be seeing that story like, blaring for weeks and weeks and weeks because it Mm. would seem to be this big cover-up and this sort of sense of well we found out the thing they didn't want you to know i think it's really important that just because those things were public and were said out loud we don't assume that that's because they're okay or that's because why wouldn't he admit to them what he did was you know i I think it's important that we don't shift this we don't allow bad actors to shift this whole conversation from one sort of framing to another just because they want to admit to the things they did which were obviously wrong and they're just scrap that part of the conversation and change it to a different terrain that's more comfortable for them or what or, or this more gray area, you know? I do think that there's been a more restraint in the coverage of Ukraine. I, I don't think there's been as much shrill, like, oh my God, this is the biggest thing in the world. It, it's been more, I mean, I think, I think that is partly because there's been a sense among reporters of the seriousness of this and how this is fact going to lead to impeachment. So there's not been as much kind of case building and shrieking i don't think in the coverage it's also way more information yeah that's true the Mueller story was actually i think he i I could be wrong i believe his inquiry wrapped up pretty quickly for a special counsel investigation so this idea it was this enormous but it was all in secret out thing is, is not totally true but yes it was all in secret um he was him and his office were unbelievably tight-lipped by yeah. the standards of, of modern um, political figures uh, or, you know, whatever you want to call them. And um, and so uh, they had, you know, the airwaves had to be filled with something, right? And yeah. the gaps between the latest court filings or the latest sort of shreds of information coming out of sources close to the White House or whatever, sometimes there were very long gaps and yet this was still the big story yeah. of the day. Mm-hmm. And, I, and so you have to fill that airtime with something. And if you don't have information to fill it with, you fill it with speculation or you fill it with punditry or you fill it with, you know... Stuff that is short of what consumers actually need to know. And I think with the Ukraine story, there hasn't been a, a day where there's been time to take a breath, right? I think we all collectively took a breath for this, or have taken, or in the middle of taking a breath for this Turkey, Kurds, yeah. Syria story, which has, I think, been the, the only story since this Ukraine impeachment saga started to really cut through it. Yeah. Not the same level, but, you know, as a, as a sort of huge story in its own right. But, you know, it's also connected. But But there hasn't really been time to take a breath. Every day it seems that there's more damning facts every day it seems that there's more evidence every day it seems that there's kind of a new yeah. thread to, to pull on every day there's a new witness in congress and there are crumbs that come out to reporters from that so i think in some ways it's it's a much more solid story than the Mueller one because it there seems to be concrete developments happening there seems to be a big political process obviously with impeachment happening yeah the danger is it's like being in the it's like being when you get into the ocean and suddenly the current has taken you somewhere you don't recognize right i think mm-hmm. i think that's the danger with this story i think it's you know, you got to really make sure that you sort of communicate the really sort of central important facts that we already know and that they've already admitted to, the White House has already admitted to, yeah. Trump has already admitted to himself. Yeah. Um, John, it's great to have you in the office. It's great to be um, briefly back. And for those of you who don't read it, you should subscribe to the media today, which you can subscribe to from the CGR website, cgr.org. You can also go back and read John's coverage of Boris Johnson while he was a journalist in London. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.